So the opening story for this Metta Sutta talk is uh, one of uh, a whole range of stories that I lovingly call Buddhist bedtime stories. And this is the story, or at least an archetypal story, of how uh, the Metta Sutta came to be and how the Buddha came to teach loving-kindness. And I bet that some of you know it by heart, which is why I think of it as a bedtime story. You can hear it over and over, and it still touches us. Once upon a time, in a land far away, long, long ago, 2,500 and something years ago to be exact, there was a group of monastics, and they were about to enter into a retreat. Think of ourselves a few days ago, about to enter into a retreat. So they were about to enter into their rains retreat, which is three months long, and they needed to find a place to do it and a place to stay that was supportive for their meditation. And so that particular year, they went up into the foothills of the Himalayas. Uh, Now please take note that the foothills of the Himalayas are about 8,000 feet high. Uh, I know because I was just living there a few months ago, but we'll get to that story uh, in, in a little while. And so they found a place where there was a small village and there was a group of people who were willing to support their practice. They were actually happy to support these monastics' practice. And so they offered small huts and they said, oh, we'll feed you, we'll offer medicine if you need it. And the monks thought, wow, we're going to have the perfect retreat. Conditions are ideal, fantastic. That year, the Buddha had given the meditation instructions on concentration. And so they got their concentration instructions, they went back up to the foothills, and they started meditating. And at first the retreat was going really well for them. Their minds were collecting, everything was going pretty well, until there was something they didn't know about where they were staying. And what they didn't know was that the woods in which they were staying were inhabited by unseen beings. And I'm not asking you to believe in anything, but I think we can use this archetypally as well as literally. So sometimes they're called devas, which is kind of the Western equivalent of that might be angels, or sometimes they're called tree spirits. Anyway, there was some presence there besides the monastics. And it was their home. So you know how it is when you invite in house guests and you're very happy to see them. And you think you know when they're leaving? Well, these unseen beings thought they were leaving in a few days, kind of like house guests, and they, the monks didn't leave. And so the devas felt invaded. They started getting territorial, and they started developing strategies to get rid of these monastics, to move them off their seat. And so they did things like, in the middle of the night, make scary noises with the branches of the trees see if they could scare the monks away. And uh, the monks were pretty unshakable at that point. Then they started producing disgusting smells. The monks stayed. The last thing they did was uh, produce mind-to-mind scary images in the monks' minds. So even if we're not talking about devas, you know, sometimes you're sitting here minding your own business and all of a sudden this scary image comes out of nowhere and you think, ah, maybe I should leave. So it could be like that. At that point, the monks freaked out, 
ran down the foothills of the Himalayas to where the Buddha was and said, teacher, teacher, we've got a big problem. We thought we had the perfect place to sit retreat, but it's too noisy, it's too smelly, it's too scary. We can't sit the retreat there. It's kind of like when you sit at home and you finally got a place and a time and everything's all together and maybe you even have a place to yourself for a little while and then all of a sudden the neighbors, it never ends, right? It just never ends. There's always something. And the Buddha said, friends, you know what? Don't despair. I think that's the perfect place for you to do your meditation retreat and have I got a practice for you, loving kindness. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. And so this metta sutta is is what we know now of the Buddha's words on loving kindness and some of many of his words on loving kindness. We're not even completely sure that he gave these exact words, but they can still be helpful in the ways that we can find them helpful and use them. And that's the invitation of this sutta and of this teaching. So we're gonna explore the sutta and some of its commentaries from a practice perspective uh, versus from a scholarly perspective. And the sutta is what is called sometimes a graduated discourse. And I'll give you a metaphor from the Buddha um, about what a graduated discourse is. The Buddha said his teaching was like the ocean. When we approach it from the shore, it is shallow at first. We can just wet our feet. Yeah. I bet many of us have been to the ocean. Just like that feeling of just starting to come in and wet our feet. And as we go into it deeper and deeper, we are eventually engulfed and finally totally swallowed by it. Just so is the teaching. So some of us are here for the first time, we're dipping our toe in. And some of us are completely engulfed our whole life. And it can go back and forth. We're always welcome to jump back out of the ocean and stick our toe in again and see how it feels. When Sylvia teaches about this sutta, she breaks it into three parts, as do many other teachers, and it's the way we'll explore it during this retreat. So the three parts are in the Pali, Sila, Samadhi, and Panya. And in English, that means um, ethics or basic integrity, which is what we're going to explore tonight. And then meditation, and then wisdom. So if you have your hand out in front of you, and it's helpful to actually be looking at something, what we're going to look at tonight is from that first line that he gave all the way up to let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. And then in the next talk, we'll go through the meditation aspect and the wisdom aspect. So this particular chant that we are doing at night is a translation that was done by a group of monastics from the Amaravati community. And the Amaravati community is a group of Western monastics who train in the Thai forest tradition of Theravan Buddhism. So this is part of our stream. We've Westernized it for sure. Um, it's under Ajahn Chah, just for those who are interested in this. So I'm about to give you a little intellectual piece. If your mind isn't there, just feel yourself resting on the chair 
and feel the sound of my voice and be friendly. Okay? That's for those who are interested, and it's brief. So this particular talk is supported by two commentaries, and they each have their own translation of the Metta Sutta that's different than the one we have. It creates a little spice in it. It's interesting to play with language, and it's an incredible capacity to have to be able to take these teachings and sometimes, I'm sure it happens to you, it happens to me, you'll read something, you'll hear something, you go, that doesn't really resonate for me. The capacity to retranslate it for ourselves in a way that does resonate really supports maturity in our practice. So we don't have to throw it out, we also don't have to say that works. We can retranslate. Actually, I'll confess that uh, the old show, Star Trek, and that part of Star Trek where they have universal translator saved my life in the Dharma. So if you forgot or you're not familiar, universal translator, they would go out in the far reaches of the universe. Talk about metta for all beings, right? All these different cultures of beings, not necessarily human, all these different languages. And the universal translator language would work so that the beings that they were meeting would be like blah, 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 blah. And then the universal translator would send it out in English for the, um, the crew. So we can do that when the language isn't working for us. We can do our own universal translator. Two commentaries. The first is a commentary by Aya Kema. And she was the first Western fully ordained nun. She isn't alive anymore, but a great master, really respect her. And the other commentary is from Venerable Buddharakita. And um, this Venerable Buddharakita, because some of us in this community know another one, is the founder of Mahabodhi Society and all of its different sister centers in India. So he's a lifelong scholar and practitioner and also activist in Indian politics. So in my basic research, I also studied three additional translations, which I will not torture you with, except maybe a line or two here or there. But as I said, I got excited. I actually discovered there are 17 main translations of the sutta into English, just in case you're curious. So we'll move from the more intellectual piece into, like, how do we practice this? How do we live this sutta? So it isn't just words. Now let us explore the Buddha's verse on loving kindness. It begins with this. And this is a translation from Ayakema. What should This is what should be done by one who is skilled in wholesomeness. So it's a little different than goodness. Here's what she says about it which is why I'm sharing it with you. She said, that is an interesting statement because it explains wholesomeness as a skill and skills can be learned. To me, that indicates that this is workable. It might feel like a huge path to undertake this path of loving kindness, but oh, wholesomeness is a skill that can be learned. We're learning it. Celebrate that. The next line in Ayakema's translation is to gain the state of peacefulness is this. She says, it says clearly that peacefulness is not something given to us. We have to gain it. It's not ours just because we like it. 
or because we're wishing for it, or because it's desirable. We have to gain it through effort. No gain comes unless effort is made. I know we know this. We sit down, may I be peaceful? And the opposite comes and we go, okay, may I be peaceful with that, right? When she's saying effort though, it's the effort I was talking about yesterday where we need to discern for ourselves the art of meditation. When's the time to paddle a little more and use some more tools? And when is wise effort relaxing back and floating in the meta and drinking it in, even if it isn't as big as we thought it could be or wanted it to be? That's wise effort. So we're going to be talking about the ethics of metta tonight. And I did have a thought oh, wow, Uh, you know, kind of a Western group, and we tend to shy away from ethics a little bit sometimes. And it's interesting how in our meditation communities we tend to start with meditation, and then maybe we work with the precepts a little bit in our own lives. And, you know, is this really going to fly? And I thought, yeah, why not? Why not be bold? Let this fly. Let this fly. So we're going to have some fun with this. This is from um, Venerable Buddha Rakita. Ethics in the Buddhist context is right conduct, which brings happiness and peace of mind. It never gives rise to remorse, worry, or restlessness of mind. Wouldn't that be nice? You want to sign up for that? Yeah. This is the immediate psychological benefit of ethics. It is also the basis for progress in the Dharma here and now. In other words, right speech, right action, and right livelihood of the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path constitute right contact in the best of sense. So enough of the introduction. Let's dive into this. There's some amazing qualities in this first part of the sutta. And so I took some of the qualities. There's actually 15 of them in this first part of the sutta. Maybe we'll read it together. And as we read it, you can see if you can identify the 15. But what I'm going to do with them is choose some of them and bring in some stories and some practices so we can really make it real, okay? So if you have your metta sutta, let's let's take it out and let's, let's start at the beginning and end with let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. And we'll just read it together. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. These are some lovely invitations. You can notice if the mind goes, well, I don't know about this one, or I love this one, it makes me smile. I could never achieve that one. We're doing it. We're doing it, so let's explore how we're doing it. And we'll start with able and upright. 
Another way of looking at the qualities of able and upright, because you might think able and upright, we're talking about ability level here. Another translation is trustworthy and honest. One of the commentaries. So I wanted to share a teaching uh, to, to draw this out in a particular way, possibility of trustworthy and honest or able and upright. And it's a teaching from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And it's a teaching that I actually received in person. So let me tell you a little bit about that. I would say that the largest event uh, that happened in my years since uh, the last time this Metta retreat community gathered was that I had the privilege to uh, take a sabbatical this summer in order to support my own meditation and study uh, and train with some teachers that are close to my heart who live in Asia and don't necessarily come to the U.S. And so I was able to spend 100 days in India during this sabbatical period. And at the end of the period, I was moving around a lot. I didn't have a plan or an itinerary. It was all very trusting my own intuition and uh, letting it unfold, which was great because something you might not know, as meditation teachers, we are scheduled almost every day of our lives very, very far in advance to support communities to be in the present moment. (laughs) Yes, that is a joke. The joke's on us. (laughs) So, you know, I needed time for organic unfolding and deep listening. And so at the end of my time, I just happened to be close enough to Dharamsala, India, which is His Holiness Holiness the Dalai Lama's kind of home seat in exile, Uh, and I was able to kind of make a detour and go there, and he was giving a three-day teaching, and I thought, oh, fantastic to be able to end my journey um, in his presence and with a community of Dharma practitioners that way. And, you know, several thousand people show up for these. So at his home temple, and I've been there before for teachings, they have sections uh, because you listen to translations over radio in, in India, he teaches in Tibetan. I know here sometimes he'll teach in English. So you sit in a section with people who speak your, uh, you know, your home language. So I went into the English speaking section and it's really, really cramped. Uh, and it doesn't have the same sense of space as our American culture kind of wishes for. And so what happens is everybody gets a little piece of concrete and you, you sit like this. I, I'm not actually exaggerating. You're just, you're all kind of, you can't cross your legs. You're just sitting there um, hoping that your rear end doesn't fall off and, and that you can hold your bladder long enough until the next break because there's no moving. <laughs> so that's part of the practice there. And people can be a little territorial because they're not used to being that crammed in. So after the first day, um, of territorial and crammed in and my rear end, I had this intuition. I thought, oh, I wonder if I went a little bit further away from where he was sitting because uh, the English section tends to be kind of close to him. What if I went down and sat with the local Tibetan community and just created another two inches for some other Westerner's rear end? You know, it's a kind thing to do. It's kind to my own rear ends. I didn't know whether it was actually okay to do that, and I didn't know if I would be welcomed by the local community. And so I sort of 
kind of quietly went over and I sat way in the back so I wouldn't, you know, accidentally get in somebody's space or anything. And I learned actually as much from that experience as I did from His Holiness. And I'm not saying His Holiness wasn't deep. He was as deep as He always is. Because it kind of reminded me actually my religion of origin. The local Tibetan community, um, these teachings are um, their community event. So everybody wears their best clothes from their own culture. And everybody comes in their families and they bring food. And it's all about seeing and being seen. And it's about devotion for His Holiness. So they would arrive at five in the morning to wait three hours to maybe wave to him as he walked by. And it just kind of chokes me up a little bit. You know, real love. It's their leader. And um, so they would sit and listen to the teachings for a little while. And His Holiness doesn't bite-size the teachings when he's teaching in his home temple. Like he gives the deepest thing he can come up with in the moment. So it's, it, you don't get to crawl into the ocean toe by toe. You just get dunked. Uh, and I love that myself. Uh, and so he'd teach, and uh, they would do their malas for a little while and listen. And then they'd turn to their friends and start talking and play with their kids and pass food and, uh, you know, hang out and then listen a little more and back and forth. So at the end of the teaching, uh, His Holiness has a habit when he teaches in Tibetan of giving a final teaching in English. That's why I'm telling this story. Um, And so I was listening really carefully for the final teaching. But of course, the Tibetans could care less about a final teaching in English, so it got even louder. Uh, And the kids were running around, and they'd been waiting way too long to scream and play. And so straining to hear the final teaching. And the final teaching this time was this. Friendship is based on trust. Trust is based on compassion. You know, and I took it in. And I wrote it down like a good student. And then the teaching was over. And I had to quickly get up. Because if you don't get up at the end of the teaching, not only is it disrespectful in that venue to His Holiness, but I'll get run over by thousands of people who have gotten up and are on the move. And so there I am, moving with the throng. And... um, these kind of pith teachings, wherever we hear them, and they don't need to be from a Dharma teacher. We hear them all the time. They're all over the place in the culture. Simple, this one. Friendship based on trust. Trust is based on compassion. Can be reflections for us about how to practice and live. And I've been using it ever since. Here's my simple reflection on this. I want to leave lots of space in your own silence for your own reflections. I thought, oh, friendship is based on trust. You know, there's an internal aspect of that. Can I trust my own experience? Can I be friendly with my own experience? And trust is based on compassion. My reflection with that is it's an acknowledgement of our humanness. Because if we're looking for a perfect trust that will never be broken internally or externally, we're unlikely to find it no matter how sincere everybody is, because we're human. And part of the process of ethics and basic integrity is making mistakes and learning from them. So it's based on this deep caring. Can I trust again, even though sometimes it hurts to open? 
even though sometimes I stumble or fall or I get whacked? And can I come back to the friendship that's based on trust? It's a pretty deep invitation, especially with some of our internal dynamics or our community dynamics. So we're developing this able and upright while we're here, this trustworthiness and honesty with our own experience. So then a couple more qualities, straightforward and gentle in speech. So this one's a little more obvious, uh, referring to wise speech. So say a little bit about the practice internally and externally. Because saying the metta phrases to ourselves is practicing wise speech internally. If we were not saying the metta phrases to ourselves, may I be protected and safe, may I be happy, may I be healthy and strong, may I live with ease, we're so much more likely to be saying to ourselves internal speech like, I'm not good enough, why can't lunch be sooner? Uh, I just, this fantasy is so much more compelling, right? So we're using wise speech internally. We're giving the discursive thinking mind a job. We say to it, okay, I know you want to think about tomorrow and yesterday and way more exciting things than this. And right now we're going to say, may I be protected and safe. And then we do it. And we develop momentum in that wise speech internally. Here's a quote from Bhikkhu Bodhi, one of the foremost scholars of our times. He says, ill will meets meets its proper remedy in the meditation on loving kindness. And then he gets really bold. He says, which banishes all traces of hatred and anger through the methodical radiation of the altruistic wish that all beings be well and happy. The end. That's huge. That's huge. Sounds lovely, right? Sounds easy. Just radiate it in all directions. Everyone be well and happy? The end. We can all go home, right? Yeah. So then I found a quote from another scholar, Nyanaponikatera. Um, he says, But unless the mind is well trained, that's what we're doing here. Unless the mind is well trained, when vehement wrath flares up, it will rarely be possible to replace it immediately by thoughts of loving kindness. Okay, so maybe it's vehement wrath and maybe it's just an aversion attack. But we know when that stuff comes to the foreground, this is one of the hindrances, and it gets strong, it is very difficult to replace it immediately by thoughts of loving kindness. And we need to have tremendous compassion for that. And forgiveness. And so in terms of the external, I want to talk a little bit about forgiveness just as the briefest introduction. We're actually going to have talks and guided practice on this theme, this complementary theme to our metta during this retreat. So the practice externally is what we say to others and, you know, how to be able and upright when we're not so skillful, right? How to be trustworthy and honest. And part of that is seeing where we stumble and being able to make amends to ourselves and to others. I wanted to share with you a program. It's actually from a book that really touches me and several of the people I'm working with individually right now are practicing with this program of forgiveness. Uh, And it comes from the book, The Book of Forgiving, 
by Desmond Tutu and his daughter uh, Mofo. Right? So they wrote it together. Uh, Desmond Tutu, of course, one of the great forgiveness activists and teachers of our time, and his daughter. To me, that's incredibly powerful. And so they have this fourfold path of forgiveness. It's, he says, and she says, it is based on our work around the world with those who have suffered heartbreak and violence. Here is the fourfold path. Number one, telling the story. Number two, naming the hurt. Number three, granting forgiveness. And lastly, renewing or releasing the relationship. And so somebody asked them, how can forgiveness heal the world? And they answered this way, forgive within yourself, forgive within your family, forgive within your community. This is how we heal the world. We start close and we work our way out, right? That's just like our metta practice. We start close and we work our way out. They continue, In South Africa, we have the term Ibantu, which literally means humanity. It is the belief that a person is only a person through other people. We are all family, and any tear in the fabric of connection between us must be repaired for us all to be made whole. To walk the path of forgiveness is to recognize that my life is bound up in your life. And that every wrongdoing hurts us all. Forgiveness is how we heal the world, one relationship at a time. So for me, I trust this and I trust them because they have seen, borne witness to, and practiced with some of the deepest wounds that humanity has to offer, their own and in community. So I take the words to heart. And as I said, this is actually a whole program. The Fourfold Path of Forgiveness is a resource for you. Some more qualities. Humble and not conceited. That one sounds good, right? It's always a little painful when we're conceited or someone else is conceited. My favorite definition of humility actually comes from the 12-step tradition. So I'll share it with you. What is humility? Humility is an awareness of who we really are today and a willingness to become all that we can be. Genuine humility brings an end of the feelings of inadequacy, the self-absorption, and the status-seeking. Humility places us neither above nor below other people on some imagined ladder of self-worth. It places us exactly where we belong, on an equal footing with our fellow beings and in harmony with a power greater than ourselves. So the way that I connect that with our lineage and our tradition is through this teaching of the conceit of I am. The conceit of I am says that fundamentally as human beings, if we are not 100% awake and free, there is this deep-rooted tendency to compare. I know I don't need to tell you this. You've been telling me about this. You are aware of this. And we tend to compare 
either better or worse or even the same. And it's all rooted in this visceral sense of I am. And it's painful. And so many of you have been sharing that, the the pain of the judgments, but also the beauty of being able to be in that flow of judgmental mind and judgmental energy with friendliness. So even though it's a very deep-seated habit pattern that at its root level is unlikely to 100% transform anytime soon, it can be workable. And one of the things we can bring in is the attitude of kindness and friendliness to meet that. It, by doing that, we start to shift the center of gravity because judgment is a pit and we fall in it and then anything will fuel it. It breeds on itself, it feeds itself. So that's a deep center of gravity. When we bring in the metta or even the friendliness, we can shift the center of gravity, even though our foot might still be on the gas pedal habit pattern of comparing or judging. It starts to shift. So I want to give an example of this um, on a larger scale than our own individual practice because we're doing our own individual practice so that we can meet these dynamics of comparing and the pain of comparing Uh, with humility and without conceit to bring our skillful means to the foreground and respond, respond appropriately. Because it's one thing when we're judging internally, but when the comparing starts to happen on a community level, the the self and other, and on a systems level, um, the pain increases. So this is somebody that I've been kind of following her, her story and her practice for some time now. Um, and his name is Io Tillett Wright. And yes, I did just change the gender. So let me tell you about Io. Um, Io is a photographer and an actor. Uh, she, she directs music videos and he is also um, working on this project right now. What is the name of the project? Self-Evident Truths. And the project is to track through photographs the entire um, LGBTQ spectrum in this country. In order to be included in the photographing project, uh, one would identify 1% or more as not straight. Yes, 1% or more. So this project is a whole range of faces and bodies and experiences. And she's doing it online because she really wants to make it um, so that people can access this. Uh, So far, Io has photographed 8,447 people and her goal is 10,000. 10,000 photographs. Um, and the intention behind this is not just the photographs and not just building a community spirit, but what Io's intention is, is to bring this in a way that it can start to work with some of the discrimination that remains in our laws, in the laws of this country. Here's a quote from Io. Familiarity really is the gateway drug to empathy. Once an issue pops up in your own backyard or amongst your own family, you're far more likely to explore a new perspective on it. Familiarity is the gateway drug to empathy. 
So we're doing that training here. We're getting really familiar internally with what's going on, what interferes with the metta, what brings up this feeling of self and other even within ourselves, and what part are we leaving out and not seeing in ourselves. And then we can look at this culture in this country and say, what needs to be included more? What needs to be seen more? Uh, and begin to include it. And, she, and you know, Io is doing this in a way that is creative and connective. And it really inspires me. So then we have contented and easily satisfied. Uh, Venerable Buddha Akita retranslates this as not over busy and simple in living. I thought that one might resonate for you a little bit more. I mean, certainly contentment can all feel our kind of what deep longing for contentment. Be on the lookout for contentment. It's easily missed even here. So many times somebody has come into me uh, in a check-in, said, I, I don't know, I, you know, I'm not really sure what's going on, and I'll start to unpack it. Well, you know, is, is your experience unpleasant? Well, no. Um, you know, what's going on? Oh, I just, I feel a little bit bored. feels like not much is happening. And I've learned to ask a couple questions, like, is there a sense of contentment? Which might not be an obvious question to ask when somebody says that. Or is there a sense of peace? Because sometimes it's just being missed. And then we start to disconnect a little bit from our experience because we're not used to the contentment or the peace. And then that disconnect leads to boredom. So not over busy and simple and living. We're giving ourselves the gift of not over busy. I'm sure some of us have experienced busyness even here. Oh my gosh, the bell just rang and I need to go down here and, and I better leave the sitting right away. I have a group. I don't want to be late. It's amazing how these habit patterns just play out. No matter how simple we get, it's conditioning, right? We need to be really friendly with it. Um, So again, on a larger scale than just our own individual practice, I wanted to bring in a teaching from Catherine Ingram. And it's a teaching about sustainable contentment. So there's internal contentment, and then there's contentment at the level of our world's resources. So in a way, what we're talking about is the conditioning of wanting more. So this is another hindrance, right? Wanting more. Anything. (laughs) Wanting anything. And when this meets the resources of our planet, um, it can deplete the resources of our planet. It doesn't mean we don't take care of ourselves. It means that we track where's the line between taking care of myself uh, and, and using more than is necessary. And what is the impact of that on others? She says, when you're living in contentment, you automatically start to have a lighter footprint, a lighter use of resources. You don't have to keep adding more and more to your life. In fact, it feels really good to want what you have, to take care of it, and to be aware that everything you're using is a representation of energy. You feel more and more as if you're part of a family. Contentment chills out the desperation of accumulation that the culture hammers you with. If you're saying, I'm quite content now, and adding all this extra stuff complicates my life, 
then you're automatically moving towards being part of the solution. Your life becomes an expression of that. There is a certain level that I feel that what we're doing here, even just what we're doing here, is an act of activism. It doesn't look like the activism that I was taught about and that I practice out in the streets. But just the fact that we're not buying anything this week, (laughs) just the fact that we're taking on this preset practice of accepting what is offered has a lot of impact. So there was another practice of this that um, I thought was interesting from James Bears's book, Awakening Joy. Wonderful book. And one of the participants in his joy courses, so this might be a wonderful adjunct or, or integration course to consider, uh, you know, it's a kind of a compliment to the meta retreat. People from all over the world um, Skype in and are involved. It's, it's actually a global community. And the topic is awakening joy. So one of tens of thousands of participants in this uh, developed this practice about working with contentment and simple in living. And this is what she did. She took on a practice for a while of buying only groceries and necessities. And when the impulse to buy something extra arose, and I'm sure she defined extra in advance, uh, she would jot it in a notebook along with her feelings and reactions. What she said is she learned directly that she could survive and be happy without buying that thing. So on retreat, we can both notice contentment and discontentment. Uh, We could do that same practice. Discontentment comes up, the hindrance of wanting, and it can be shameless. It'll glue itself onto anything will come up. And we can notice, oh, this is wanting. Can I drop back, take a few breaths, see how it's feeling in the body, bringing the metta in, the friendliness in to that discontentment? For others of us, the deep conditioning and our way of transforming the deep conditioning is actually offering ourselves what we need because we didn't get it. And so I want to be really clear that I'm not talking about that. The complementary practice is offering ourselves what we need But then the nuance of discerning the line between, oh, fulfillment, and I'm offering it to myself, and the extra. Only we can know that. That's our wisdom. So then we have peaceful and calm. Aren't these qualities lovely? I mean, they're why we came here. I'm sure at least a couple of them have something to do with why you came here. So another, uh, there's a few translations of peaceful and calm. Uh, One is that, actually all three of them that I'm about to mention, one is the senses are calmed, one is the senses are restrained, uh, and the other is the senses are tranquil. So what does this mean? This is talking about the concentration aspect a little bit of this metta. And this question of how do we relate to these sense doors, right? Once the Buddha uh, was, was asked a question and his response was, 
Today, I am going to give you the teaching about the all with a capital A. What is the teaching about the all, friends? Well, the all is the sense door of the eyes, of the ears, of the nose, of the mouth, of the body, of the mind. This is the all. And one of the things he meant by that is that that's all that's happening. That's all that's happening. That's a really different way of relating to our experience than me and my drama. There's a lot happening all the time. So how do we calm these sense doors? This is a really important question because um, some of the more traditional teachings are, are quite disciplined and restrained. Um, and those can be incredibly valuable. They supported me so much in my own practice at a certain point. Uh, the simplicity of not looking around at others and really committing to it. It's amazing how much less judgment happens when you're not watching other people all the time. So just one example might, why it might be helpful for you to amp that up in certain moments. But in other moments, that same practice can lead to feelings of isolation, which is not what we're aiming for here. So again, we have to trust ourselves and develop the art of our practice. Really, the essence of it is an invitation to not get lost in the sense doors, and that's including our minds. So I want to talk about the essence of it or the internal practice of it primarily here, calming the senses. I want to bring in another teaching from Ayakema. It's, it's, a, it's a little long, so it's, you know, it's just like it's a reflection. For, it's for practice. She says, by being aware, we can learn to realize that hearing is just hearing and seeing is just seeing. Hearing is only sound. Seeing is only sight. The mind creates all kinds of ideas around our sense doors, such as this is beautiful and I want it. This is ugly and I don't ever want to see or hear it again. Our senses are in constant touch with the world. We don't want to be blind and deaf and have no sense of taste or touch or smell. Life would be extremely difficult that way. But the senses create a world of illusion for us. They are magicians because upon contact, they immediately induce the mind to create repercussions. You know those repercussions, right? You see a sight and all of a sudden you're somewhere else, some other time. She says, we need to protect our sense doors so that while being aware of sights and sounds and touch and smell, we neither crave nor reject them. This is difficult to do, but a very important aspect of leaving suffering behind. So this is one of the invitations of uh, senses calmed. Senses calmed. The next one is not proud and demanding in nature. You know how it feels to be around somebody who's proud and demanding in nature, right? You know how it feels to be around yourself when you're proud and demanding in nature, right? I certainly do. There's some interesting, there's an interesting other translation of this by Ayakema. Unswayed by the emotions of the crowd. So that's kind of traditional language, but what's it talking about? It's saying not getting sucked into peer pressure. 
not over needing the world to tell me what is so. Not proud and demanding in nature. So a couple of examples of this. I read a lot of um, books for fun while I was on my sabbatical, but um, for me, books for fun, (laughs) this tells you a little something about me, means uh, uh, these days looking for um, books from women authors about their spiritual path or or, you know, some sort of different projects that are going on on the planet that I might not have time to read about when I'm working and that inspire me. And so those are my books for fun. So one of the books I read for fun was the, um, a book of the spiritual journey of Karen Armstrong. So Karen Armstrong wrote Buddha, the book Buddha, the book God, the book Muhammad. Uh, she's a, a scholar and activist on behalf of Interfaith and has been for a really, really long time. And I didn't know that she had actually written a book just about her own spiritual journey. And I found it in a guest house on the bookshelf. And it's called, um, it's called The Spiral Staircase, in case you're interested. Her personal story of faith. And it really was her personal story of faith. Uh, it was a wonderful book. But at the end, she talked about how that personal journey of faith, uh, what, basically a little bit about what it taught her in terms of doing her work uh, with interfaith scholarship and speaking and communities. Uh, because she takes tremendous risks. And she's been highly criticized by different groups over the years. You know, she's, she's working in risky territory. And so she talked about that a little bit. You know, she's, she's somebody that has a lot to be proud of. But her response was this. It is important for me to do this, continuing her work talking with communities, studying, bringing people together around interfaith topics. It's important for me to do this uh, because my solitary lifestyle could imprison me forever in selfishness. In a relationship, you constantly have to go beyond yourself. Each day you have to forgive something. Each day you have to put yourself to one side to accommodate your partner. Looking after somebody else means that you have to give yourself away. Now she is speaking these words from a place of integrity and balance. And I'm sure, although I don't know positively, that like so many of us who... um, who uh, do spiritual work and work with communities, these near misses of codependence and over-boundaried. And I'm sure she works with those. So we need to hold this statement in a healthy way. When we give ourself away, it's talking about the pieces that are extra. It's not saying we're falling into old conditioning of codependence. And codependence is is kind of like, it's a near miss in the sense that it doesn't acknowledge the relative truth that there is a me and a you. It merges and it over-merges and it merges too soon. The maturity isn't there. So the caring is, it's just a near miss. And really to do this, this kind of humility, 
being unswayed by the emotions of the crowd, it takes tremendous equanimity. We have to be grounded and we have to have the courage not just to look and see what's true for ourselves, but to know, to know what is true for ourselves. It takes tremendous equanimity. Here's Ayakema's version of this. If someone gets angry, we don't get angry with them. If someone gets sad, we don't get sad with them. If someone has a poor opinion of another person, we don't agree because it's interesting to talk about such things. We have our emotions under control. So again, a little bit traditional language. Let's retranslate it a little. Let's look at our own experience. One of the ways I would retranslate this is we care, but we don't drown. So we're in connection with the crowd and we care but we don't get swept away. We don't drown. We're clear. The planet needs that clarity. And uh, not just internally, but externally. That we really empower ourselves. We can wait a long time for our, uh, the crowd to empower us. And it is sure helpful. We can also empower ourselves as much as is possible. So we don't want to push it. We want to listen to ourselves. So we're coming to the end here. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Hmm. Let me not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. I can almost feel my teachers over my shoulder. But actually for me, that's a beautiful image because when I do the slightest thing that the wisdom in myself might say, ah, that was a miss, ouch. I can feel them cheering me on, saying, you're doing great, you care. It's enough, keep going. That's what I'm saying to you. It's enough, keep going. So we're talking about here practicing the five precepts of not taking life, of not taking what isn't offered, um, of being wise and careful with our sexuality, our speech, and our use of intoxicants. And it's very much, as I said the other night, in the spirit of progress, not perfection. This is from Dr. Martin Luther King. Compassion and nonviolence help us to see the enemy's point of view to hear their questions, to know their assessment of ourselves. From their point of view, we may indeed see the basic weakness of our own condition. And if we are mature, we may learn and grow and profit from the wisdom of the brothers and sisters who are called the opposition. So we can actually take on a practice of using the precepts of non-harming as a lens to see ourselves while we're here and in our lives. We're practicing listening to ourselves internally and externally. When somebody has a critique, sometimes we will have the bandwidth and the inner resource to actually hear it and not 
We don't need to internalize it, and it may not be all wise. But as Dr. King was suggesting, there may be a kernel of something we could learn there. It's possible. We don't have to force it. We could just be open to it. (laughs) Amy Cuddy puts it this way, and Amy Cuddy is a, a social psychologist Uh, And she has a a teaching, I think actually it's a book, Your Body Language Shapes Who You Are. Okay, so she tracks in mindfulness body language and the way that actually we hold our body supports creating our world. Very interesting. So she is talking about actually an embodied somatic presence in practice. She says it like this. She says, don't fake it till you make it. Fake it till you become it. And she's talking about, uh, like, for example, when we go into a kind of collapse somatically, which can happen when we feel like, oh, I totally screwed up. I moved out of basic integrity inside myself. We can start to collapse inside. And our body can do a slight collapse too. And, you know, the suggestion with this is, like, could we notice, ah, in integrity and delight in that? And can we notice, oh, a near miss, and really be clear about the somatic response of that and actually bring it into like a more embodied and power stance. It's not cheating. Uh, Donald and I, when we teach our retreat on transforming the judgmental mind, and yes, we teach a whole retreat on transforming the judgmental mind. It's that serious of a topic. Um, We will work with this in practice, saying, hey, you know, what does it feel like to take on an empowered posture in this moment? You can play with it with walking meditation a little bit if you want. No? Just a suggestion. Some of you will resonate, others of you. It'll go into the, the uh, databanks. So Ayakema is referring to these 15 skills when she says... All these skills are needed before there's even any mention in the Metta Sutta of loving anybody. Is that amazing? The discourse doesn't get to the word love until all the necessary conditions for it have been made clear. Okay, so I'm going to offer a little commentary on her commentary because um, for me this falls under a model that I call ordinary, extraordinary, ordinary, and it's kind of a tripod. We experience love before all these 15 conditions happen. We know it. We experience friendliness. We experience goodwill. We experience them in their ordinary aspects. And it's very important to to know that and to cultivate that. Through the spiritual path um, and through the journey you're on this week, uh, each of us in our own way, these same qualities will have moments where they start to become extraordinary. Like, wow, I knew what metta was, but I've never felt it like this. And that this will feel and look different for every one of us. It becomes extraordinary manifestation. And then, through being moved by that, we integrate it and we manifest it in the most ordinary of ways. But it's informed from a deeper place. Ordinary, extraordinary, ordinary. I learned the Metta Sutta the way um, 
I would guess that some of you have actually through chanting it here, many, many different nights of chanting it. And the whole scholarly thing came much, much later. There was something about chanting it repeatedly and just being able to breathe and move the words through the body and feel them on that level um, that really allowed this teaching to come alive in me in my early years of practice. And just like with the metaphrases where you're doing your rounds and one of them lights up more than the others and you can't wait, different parts of this have lit up for me over the years. The part I can't wait to sing and my voice gets even more full and you know, you just kind of let it rip a little bit. I wasn't actually planning to, but um, it, it, feels, it feels like we'll finish this reflection by chanting it together. Because for some of us, that's actually the way that it will land. And I want to respect that. And we'll do more chanting later, not to worry. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another, or despise any being in any state. Let none, through anger or ill will, wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, 
spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. So just take a moment and breathe that in. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.